Let me, uh, let's pray once again before the Lord. God, we come before you. And even as we've already sung, we pray that you would speak through your word, through your spirit. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Grant us understanding of your word, understanding of how you would have us adjust our lives to align with you. In your holy name we pray, amen, amen. Well, if you were to hang around our house for any matter of time, maybe it would be a day, at some point in time, you might hear one of us say the phrase, hydrate, don't dihydrate." And this came out of a, uh, a, a, an MFUGE trip actually years ago going to Philadelphia. They constantly, at all these MFUGE trips with the youth, they would constantly tell us, drink more water, drink your water, you got to drink water. And so this phrase has become something that we've, um, it's become a periodic reminder in our home to drink more water, both in, in our weight loss journey and through regular visits to Dr. Doogie Rala and Dr. Kate, we've had to be reminded about the benefits of drinking water and the negative effects of not drinking enough in fact, some very smart people at Harvard have said that drinking enough water each day is crucial for many reasons, to regulate the body temperature, keep joints lubricated, prevent infections, deliver nutrients to cells, keep organs functioning properly, being well hydrated also improves sleep, and who doesn't need a little bit more sleep? It improves cognition, it improves mood. So then the question is, how much should we drink? Well, they say, these experts, who don't, whoever they are at Harvard, say that women should drink an average of 11 cups of water a day. That's 88 ounces. That is a bunch of water. Guys, we're not off the hook. They say that we should drink 16 cups or 128 ounces of water a day. That means those 16-ounce bottles, we got to drink a bunch of them. Our bodies just tend to work better with hydration. And I got to tell you, I'm learning the hard way because I'm not a natural water drinker. I like drinking stuff that has flavor. I like drinking coffee, and that depletes my body from, uh, with water. I like drink, drinking Coke Zero and Cherry Coke Zero. I grew up drinking soda, which is half the problem that my body is experiencing now. Water may not have a lot of taste, but it is... God's gift to us, and it is a vital part of our physical well-being. And just as water is good for our bodies, God's word is like water for our souls. And so as we continue looking at how we can have disciplined delight in the Trinity through spiritual disciplines, we're going to reflect on another way that we can leverage the blessing of God's word. Last week, we looked at how we can take it in through reading, through hearing, through studying. Today, we're going to look at how we can work on it by meditating and even memorizing. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open them, open them to Psalm chapter 1. There are many places where we can look at meditation. 
There are many places, especially in the Old Testament, where we can look at this mandate, this command to meditate on the Word of God. But I think Psalm 1 lays it out in one of the clearest ways that we can see. So Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, or law of Yahweh. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are so many things I think we can pull out of this passage. It's such a rich text. But I want us to focus on this discipline of meditation. And I think one of the takeaways that we can find in this passage is that spiritual hydration is aided by meditation on God's word. Spiritual hydration is aided by meditation on God's word. As we mentioned last week, Donald Whitney wrote in, in one of his books, no spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's word. Nothing can substitute for it. There is simply no healthy Christian life apart from a diet of the milk and meat of scripture. And so God's word is our spiritual nutrition. And I think this passage helps us to see that meditation is the means by which we get God's word into our minds in a lasting way that has lasting impact. We need to meditate. But then that kind of begs the question, what is meditation? What is it? What is this thing? If we were to go around to Whalen Commons or walk down to McDonald's and ask people along the way, hey, what is meditation? Some folks might say that meditation is emptying your mind. It's sitting on the ground. It's crossing your legs, doing some motion with your hands and, and humming or mumbling. It's emptying your mind of all extraneous thoughts. Other people might say that meditation is focused thinking on a subject or a word or a phrase or an object. But biblical meditation is different. Donald Whitney describes biblical meditation as deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture. For the purposes, notice this, for the purposes of understanding, application, what we live out, and for prayer. Richard Foster, in his definition, he referenced two different words that we see in Hebrew that are used some 58 times in the Old Testament. And Foster writes this. He said, meditation is listening to God's word, reflecting on God's works, rehearsing God's deeds, and ruminating on God's laws. That's anything but emptying. So when we look throughout Scripture, we find meditating has a variety of connotations. And I think we can 
We can expect that it involves pondering. We've already talked about that, that idea of thinking, spending time thinking about the word, about the law, about the instructions of God, about who God is, about how he works. Psalm 77, 12 says, I will ponder all your work and meditate on all your deeds. There we have the two different words that are used in the Old Testament. Ponder is the word that we're looking at in Psalm 1. Meditate is the other word. I will ponder all your work. I will meditate on all your deeds. It involves this careful thinking, even deep thinking, as we saw in the definitions from both Whitney and Foster. But it seems in addition to pondering, meditation can involve muttering or uttering. If, you, if we were to do a word search, we would find that a lot of the times when meditation is used, it has a verbal connotation. It has an expressive element. It's not just what happens in our brain. I don't know if your brain is like mine, but when I get silent, when I stop speaking or when I stop writing or when I stop reading, when I'm just silent, my mind goes everywhere. And I think sometimes scripture reminds us that we need to mutter or utter the things that we're thinking, the things that we should be thinking. In fact, Isaiah tells us that we can actually mutter, we can meditate from a negative standpoint. Isaiah 59.3 says, for your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters, meditates, wickedness. Yes, we can meditate on wicked things. Not that we should, but in our own carnal nature and our sinful flesh, we have this desire to meditate, to speak about things that we shouldn't speak about. Gossip might be one of those wicked mutterings. But positively speaking, the psalmist writes in Psalm 37, 30, the mouth of the righteous utters, meditates, wisdom. His tongue speaks justice. And as we think about Psalm 1 and the idea that the blessed person finds his or her delight, which delight really gets to the heart. It's the the delight in the instruction of God. And in the law of Yahweh, on his law, he meditates day and night. There's an element of thinking and I think also an element of speaking as we consider the law of God. And when we think about this in light of all of Scripture, there is a sense that, in which we could say that meditating is also chewing. Meditating is chewing. It's sort of like chewing the cud. Now, there, there are no words. Let me just be straight up. There are no words in Hebrew that, tra- that communicate meditation and chewing the cud together. Okay, this is a bit of an extrapolation on my part. And so if you find that this is unbiblical, let's have a conversation afterwards. But I want you to hear me out. Here's what I'm thinking. In a practical sense, what is meditation? It is essentially bringing back up in our minds that which we've taken in before, right? It's a processing in our mouths something that we've started to process before. That sounds a little like chewing the cud to me. In fact, last week in our community group, Mina brought that illustration together as we were talking about the word of God as it it is our meat, it is our spiritual food, and we need to continue to work on it the way that a cow works on grass. So Mina, thank you for that illustration. 
But along those lines, as I was thinking about Psalm 1 this week, as I was meditating on Psalm 1, I got to thinking about, you know, those Israelite laws? I mean, how many of us would say that Leviticus is our favorite book of the Bible? Can we even spell it? It used to actually be my favorite book when I was a kid because I loved the way it rolled off my tongue. Leviticus, it just sounded cool. But then I started reading and I thought, God, what is in here? But in Leviticus chapter 11, God lays out for the people of Israel all these dietary laws. He basically says, you can eat these things, you can't eat those things. And when it came to animals, God told them specifically you could eat animals that had, had a parted hoof, so every hoof had two parts to it. It, it, was, it was cloven, so each part went all the way to the ground. So like a camel has a parted hoof, but it's not cloven because it's got like this leathery thing on the bottom. A horse doesn't have a parted hoof, so you can't eat a horse. But the other thing that was required is it had to chew the cud. It had to take in food, bring it back up, chew it on again, take it in, and kind of going back and forth. And so I got to thinking about this. Now, this is just my own little silly uh, ponderings. But imagine if we were in ancient Israel, if we were maybe in the Exodus or in the promised land and, and we happen to go to the tabernacle or go to the synagogue one day and we hear the word of God preached and, and we hear the word of God explained. And then when you go home and, and maybe, maybe you've got a few animals, a few farm animals around your tent, a few sheep, you've got a cow or two, you've got some goats, you've got a horse, maybe a camel. And your daughter comes to you and says, Mommy, I know, you know cows are good and goats are tasty and sheep is pretty good, and, but why can't we eat horses? Why can't we eat that? And so you might be able to respond what we learned in synagogue that God said these are good for you and these are not. So because God said it, we're only going to eat these things. And that would be good enough. But imagine this, imagine explaining it a little bit further to your daughter or your son, and you say, you notice how the, the cow eats his food and brings it back up and continues working on it and, and swallows it again. It's a little bit gross, but think about that. I know lunch is coming in a few minutes, so now we all, none of us want to eat. But think about this. Imagine telling your daughter or son, you know how we can only hear Scripture on Sabbath? We don't have it written. We don't have a scroll that we can take home. We have to think about it all week long. So just like the, the cow and the sheep and the goat, they have to work on their food. We have to work on the Word of God in our minds and in our mouths over and over again until we hear the next segment. Now, we, we have the benefit of, of having the Word of God written down. We have this joy of the written Word of God, and they, that's something they didn't have back then. But imagine having animals that were a constant reminder that we should meditate on the Word of God. Meditation. So essentially, meditation is thinking. It's muttering. It's chewing on God's Word, getting it in so we really understand it. But this challenges us to ask another question. Why is meditation so important? Well, I think just as hydrating our bodies has both preventative and productive benefits, so too does meditating on God's Word. First of all, meditation prevents things. It prevents falling into sinful ways. 
Think about this person that is contrasted in Psalm chapter 1. If you look in, those, in the verses 1 and 2, where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Think about this. When we meditate, but instead, he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. When we meditate on God's law, we choose not to walk in the counsel of the wicked. We choose not to kind of saunter the way that we might get advice from, from those who are ungodly. There's a movement to that. There is something, I think, in our flesh, and we want to see and learn and understand about all sorts of wicked things. But the person who is blessed of God does not intentionally walk into places where he or she can be influenced by wickedness. We're not going to, because we meditate, we no longer have the desire to walk into the counsel of the wicked. Or, or, nor does this person stand in the way of sinners. I love how this passage just has this progression. There's that intentional walking, and oh, we might bypass some wickedness. Well, now there's the idea of standing. It's like standing in a highway. I'm going to watch wickedness come right at me, and I'm going to watch sinful ways come at me. I'm going to be there so I can experience that. And the, the psalmist says the the person who delights in the law of God, the person who meditates on God's law is someone who's not going to stand where sinfulness is going to overtake them. And then finally, he said, this person is not going to sit, rest, relax, lay down with, scoffer. Because our desire is elsewhere. Our desire is on God. Our delight is in God and in his law. So when we meditate on his word, all of the sinful things that we might run across, all those things that we might hear from, from teachers on the radio, in music, in news reports, all of these things, now our minds are able to filter it out, filter it out and say, no, 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 that is against God's law. I want to do what God wants me to do. But when, when we... <clears throat> when we meditate on God's laws and his instruction on his word, we are choosing to be influenced by him, by his word. We are choosing to associate with God and his ways rather than the world and its wicked ways. But in addition to preventing us from falling into sinful ways, when prompting us to respond to God's salvation, meditation prevents eternal destruction. Meditation prevents eternal destruction. You know, think about this. So, so look back in Psalm chapter 1. In verses 3, uh, in verse 3, the, the psalmist gives us this image of the person who has meditated on God's law. And then in verses 4 through 6, he translates or he uh, counters that with the person who chooses wickedness. Look at verse 4. He says, the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice the psalmist here refers to a judgment. And I think when we truly meditate on God's word, when we meditate on his law, we get to see his holiness 
and his justice. We get to see his goodness and his grace. We get to see his love and forgiveness. We get to see that God, we get to see that as God is calling us into a relationship with him, he is calling us to live in his ways. Not because he doesn't want us to have fun, but because he wants us to flourish. He wants the best for us. And so ultimately, our holiness comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled all that the law required. Jesus fulfilled everything that the law mandated. And so Jesus demonstrated the life that we are called to live. And so I want to encourage you, friend, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you've not yet trusted him as your Savior, then take a moment to meditate and reflect on the holiness of God, on his goodness and love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, meaning you, if you, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then meditate on your own sinfulness. Meditate on that verse that says, For all have sinned, and all includes me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then meditate on the fact that the wages, the reward, the the benefit that I get from my sin is death, eternal separation from God, eternal punishment. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in response, let me encourage you to repent of your sin. Turn and trust in Christ as your Savior. Believe, be baptized, be saved. And if you've not yet made a a profession of faith, if you've not followed Christ in that way, let me encourage you. Let's have a conversation after church. Let's get together this week, have a cup of coffee or drink some water, and we can talk, open scripture together so you can understand what it means to truly be saved. But I think in in addition to preventing some things, preventing us from falling into sin, preventing us from falling into eternal judgment, meditation also produces some things. First of all, it produces a fruitful life. And again, this is not simply any kind of meditation. This is biblical meditation produces life flourishing in us. Meditation on the law of God or on his instructions. And the psalmist goes on to describe the, the life of the blessed person the one who delights in God and in his word in verse three is that he is like a tree. See this picture. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Imagine planting your life there by a by a river that is flowing with fresh water. You're constantly being nourished so that at the appropriate time, you can bear fruit. You can produce the life that God has called you to produce. And in the storms of life, you're not gonna waver. You're not gonna fall over. You're not gonna tip over. You're, you're, gonna, be, you're gonna have so much nutrition in you that when disease wants to come in, your leaves aren't gonna wither. You'll be strong, flourishing. In addition to producing a fruitful life, it seems like a life that is marked by meditation on God's word 
we'll find that the process of meditation removes spiritual toxins and becomes a sort of filter for our souls. In other words, meditation produces holiness in us. Meditation on God's instructions and precepts reveals areas in our lives where we may not be as holy as we could be. It should reveal areas where we have set up our own false idols, where we are trusting in our own strength more than in God's, where we rely on our own wisdom rather than on His, where our affections are misdirected, where I want this more than I want God, where I want God's handouts more than I want Him. You see, our lives fully belong to God. Not just what happens when we gather, Every breath, every thought, every action, every intention has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Every part of who we are is intended to be sanctified or holy, and that will take time. Meditation on God's word helps us to see where there are inconsistencies between his word and our walk. As I was studying this passage and began to look at some of those dietary laws, I ran across a a quote from a guy named Derek Tidball in his commentary on the book of Leviticus. And he writes this. He says, their God, the people of Israel, their God was holy, and he required them to mirror his holiness in the way in which they lived. Holiness was never presented to them as an abstract ideal. It was always an attainable reality that dealt with the ever-present routines of daily life. Holiness encompassed the whole of life. It impacted what went on in the kitchen, the maternity room, the sick room, and the bedroom as much as what went on in the sanctuary. A God whose presence was felt in the kitchen was not a God you could marginalize and keep confined to a compartment of life marked spiritual or serve only at special times designated for worship. He was a God who reigned over the totality of life and was to be served at all times and in all places. See, for the people of Israel, everything about their lives became practical reminders or means of meditation on God and his holiness and the holiness to which they had been called. And when Jesus stepped onto the scene, he fulfilled all of those laws, the laws that were expected, and he did that on our behalf. He gave us his spirit to dwell within us, and now we have his word as a guide. As we read earlier, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So not only does meditation produce a fruitful life and holiness, The result of meditation on God's word and our appropriate response results in a relationship with God. The psalmist writes, if you look here in the last verse, verse 6, he said, For the Lord, for Yahweh, knows the way of the righteous. That word in Hebrew is also translated guards or watches over. You see, when we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are sealed with him for eternity. 
He guards us for eternity. Satan may attack. Satan may hurt us. But he will not. He cannot destroy us because we are his. But more than that, as someone who's responded to the gospel of Jesus, you and I get to walk with God. We get to walk with him. We get to converse with him. We get to interact with him. We get to delight in him. We get to know him and be known by him. So we've seen that meditation is a sort of spiritual hydration, bringing nutrients, bringing the nutrients of God's word into our souls. We've discussed why it's important. So let's conclude by thinking about some methods of meditation. There are, frankly, so many different ways that we can meditate on God's word. It may involve journaling. It may involve reading and memorizing. It may involve singing or speaking aloud. And over the course of our lives, it may involve us changing our pattern. I was with some pastors this week. We had lunch together, and we were talking about our devotional practices. And and one guy said, you know, about every three months, I change what I do because I get used to what I've done. And we kind of need that. A new, a new year is kind of a new time where we can make a fresh start, start something new. And maybe that new pattern will last a few weeks. Maybe it'll last the rest of the year. I know for me, it's easy to get into a rut and become stale. So we'll have to change our plans from time to time. But Because you are uniquely created by God, your way of meditating is going to be a little bit different than mine. So maybe you need to chart your own course. Now, don't just do anything. Don't just look at a picture. Don't just look at this. Chart your course based on Scripture. Read the Word prayerfully, carefully, and slowly, asking God to pique your interest on something and then reflect on it. If you write about it, If you talk about it, if you mutter it throughout the day, let it ruminate in you. Maybe grab a study Bible. Read the comments from very smart people who have things to say on the bottom. Look at those little tiny letters. You might need a magnifying glass, but look at some of the cross-references and see what else is, is going into what that biblical author is saying. But in all of this, set your spiritual gaze on God and navigate your soul in his direction. Not just on any random thing. Not just on the latest teaching from some popular Bible teacher. On his word. On his word. And maybe if you'd like a bit of a more structured plan, you might want to follow maps. M-A-P. Yes, when uh, Zach and Mel and I were at the cross conference a couple weeks ago, frankly, David Platt shared this in one of the breakout sessions. So this is straight from him. This is not mine. This is his idea. It's something that he does, that they do at their church. But MAPS essentially stands for Meditate and Memorize, Apply, Pray, and Share. Meditate. As you read Scripture, consider journaling As I said, looking up those cross-references and and then mutter it throughout the day. Speak about it. Let it cross your lips. Even if no one else hears you, speak through it. The second one, apply. Write down some things that... Or think about some, some implications, some applications that you can use in the Word of God. Things that you can do 
Maybe it's things that you need to repent of. Maybe it's things that you need to change. Maybe it's a way of thinking that you need to adjust. Thirdly, pray. And even in this, Platt has a, another acronym for this. Pray essentially stands for praise. Praise God for who he is, for his word, for what you've read, what he has revealed. R, repent. Repent. Say, God, I know that what you've written here is not representative in my life. I repent. I am sorry for what I'm not doing or what I am doing that is contrary to your will. Thirdly, ask. And this is where you might ask for something personally. God, help me in light of what I've read to live this out. Or maybe as you're going through the membership directory, the church directory, as you're praying for brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe as you're getting to this word, you're praying for, for Pete and Jackie. You're praying that God would let them flourish the way that the trees standing by streams of water. Or maybe it's, you're praying for Dan and Michelle and you're praying that same thing over them. You're letting the word guide how you pray and ask on behalf of each other. Maybe you're praying for that brother or sister or that neighbor who is far from God, and you're asking that God would so reveal himself that that person might be known by God. And then finally, wise for yielding. In light of the passage, adjust your ways to him. Commit to follow through on what God is bringing to your mind. It's one thing for us. I don't know how often I do this, but it's frequent. You, you get to this, oh, I need to do that. And then I get away from it and I forget God, I promise I'll confess this or I'll do that or I'll say this to that person. And then the end of the day comes and I never do what I said I've done. So this last part in praying is yielding. God, help me. Help me to do what you're laying on my heart to do. Help me to share the gospel with this person that you're laying on my heart. Which brings us to the last part of MAPS. Meditate, apply, pray, share. Talk about it with someone. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's at work. Talk about what you've read. Maybe it's in the car on the way to school. Maybe it's at dinner. And you may have noticed over the last couple of weeks and really over the next several weeks, we're going to close the service by reading the same passage of Scripture. I know it might get old, but I hope it gets in our minds. The, the Hebrews called that the Shema. And essentially the Shema says... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then here's the sharing part. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit down, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, the Pharisees in the New Testament, one of the things that they did is when they would go to pray, they would take a, a leather strap and they would bind it up around their arm as a reminder when they were praying that they were trying to take this literally. You shall bind it around your arm. And they would have a little box filled with scripture and they would have it dangled from their forehead. And so it was hitting right here. So they would constantly see, oh, there's the word of God. I need to live by that. They have a, a little thing, and my, my in-laws have this, but a little cylinder that they would put on their doorpost that had Scripture inside of it. It might have the Ten Commandments or something like that. They were taking very literally the thing that I think uh, this passage is telling us to do very practically. The Word of God should be so evident on our lives that people see it in our hands. They see it in what we do. 
It should be on the forefront of our mind that people know that when we speak, we're speaking the very words of God. They, shall, they should see it in the way that our household is put together. That Man, that is a household that is amazing. I wish that I, why is that household so cool? Oh, because they're guided by the word of God. That family knows God. So let me just close with this. I, I think our souls need God's word in the same way that our bodies need water. May we have a deep desire to find that spiritual hydration through meditation. May we experience the fruit that he promises in his word. We sung about that. Every promise of your word. The one who delights in the law of the Lord on his law, he meditates day and night, will be like a tree planted by streams of water who bears fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither in all he does He prospers. May our lives be like that.